Well, um, once again, I'm Kyle. I'm one of the leaders here. It is uh, such a gift to be able to gather with you here in this space. And um, hello and, and welcome. Um, you know, here just by way of introduction, we are in this um, this little teaching series, which it feels less like a, a teaching series of like, here, let's just pick a, a, a whimsical topic and then move in there and see if there's some scriptures that match that. But rather, this was a, a desire um, for like a culture shift, and, and not just a culture shift of this local church, but a culture shift of our hearts, which is, is to say that emotional health and the way of Jesus actually go hand in hand. There's this little line, and, and this, is, uh, this series is kind of built in the backdrop on this um, series called Emotionally Healthy Church by Pete Scazzaro. And this, the, the line that kind of runs through that whole work is we cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, that the two actually go hand in hand, that our emotional maturity is, is like a ceiling by which every aspect of our life is governed. And if that's new information to you, um, welcome. We've been, you know, kind of lingering around things like dealing with the past of um, going to the place of pain because the place of pain is actually the place where we will encounter healing and then our healing can then and uh, be a gift given by God to the world. Um, we spent a little while on generational sin as you do in church, you know, just plumbing the depths of our beneath the surface layers. And I, I don't know about you, it's been a little heavy. And so um, this, this teaching will kind of follow in line with that, but we won't stay here forever. Um, and so today I just want to invite you to flip or tap your way on over to Genesis chapter 2. And so if you have your, your Bibles, you can make your way on over there. Genesis chapter 2, we're, we're going to pick up in, in verse 4. Um, but, you know, I just, I wanted to make another note on something that's been rattling around in my mind as we've worked our way through this series. You see, last week we talked about re receiving the gift of limits, and the idea is that um, you only have so much to give. And you can only give what you can, you cannot give what you do not possess. And that may seem like the a silliest of statements. And yet so often we try to extend ourselves beyond the bounds of our limits. And so we turned to the gospel according to John, to John the Baptist. And in that place with John the Baptist, we saw that he knew who he was in part because he knew who he wasn't. If you remember the story, he receives this interrogation. These um, people are sent to him by the Jewish leaders and they say, are you the Messiah? Nope. Well, what about Elijah? There was this hope kind of lingering among the Jewish people that there would be, Elijah would come back before the renewal of all things, and John the Baptist says, nope, and they go, okay, well, well what about the prophet? They're referring to this hope that one like Moses would come and speak on God's behalf to the people, and he says, no. And finally, when he says who he is, when he gives us an answer other than no, he helps us to see who Jesus is. If you remember the line, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That this Jesus is the one who will set the human project back on track. And, and what, the question that began to spin around in my mind was, what do we have to give? Like, what, what do we at the Gateway Church actually have to give? And I'm not talking about, like, um, monetarily. You may have noticed that I skipped the generosity liturgy. That wasn't on purpose. That was on accident. 
and so, and yet that, that question is not about what do we have to give monetarily, but more of like, what do we actually possess? What are our limits? What do we have to give? And so I, it made me think about this past season. And so I just began reflecting on the past 16 months. And by the way, I have no idea how these past 16 months have felt for you. Um, I know how they've felt for me, and I've had an idea of how they've felt for our community. And uh, if this is, you know, maybe you've been around Gateway for a while, perhaps this is your first time here, so maybe some of this will be news to you, but I'll just uh, give a little recap. At the start of the pandemic, we moved locations, not because we chose to, but because Central Campus, the, which is a part of Des Moines Public Schools, they uh, shut down their spaces. If you recall back then, um, nobody really knew what a global pandemic meant. <laughs> and so we were like, the safest thing and the most loving thing that we can do is actually close doors and stay home and as we learned, we adapted, but we um, were no longer available to be in Central Campus. So we went over to, we have some, uh, um, space over at the co-working space at Gravitate, and we did a prayer gathering there. And then we went online, which was like a pretty remarkable transition to see our whole community pivot. And community group leaders were leading like little house churches, and it was beautiful. It was like the kingdom of God. And then we, we, um, we got pretty tired because that's a lot even in of itself. Um, and so we, we transitioned outside and we went to Grays Lake Terrace and then from Grays Lake Terrace, we went in here and we're like, oh, this is in October of the past year. And we're like, yes, this will be good. And then we are asked by the governor to, if we're able, stay home. So we stay home and we go online and then we come back together. And then, oh, by the way, we find out that this whole um, complex is being sold in six parcels. You know, just living on unstable ground. So I was wondering, what do we have to give? Because we have given so much emotional energy, physical energy, cleaning out rooms and trying to transition and going online, offline, all of that. And so, um, you know, I. I've, I've, I personally, like this a scripture itself was a gift to me of just being able to name the reality we live in. And so if you're, if you're not there already, um, go with me to Genesis chapter two, verse four, so that we might look at what it, it might look like to embrace grief and loss uh, actually as a place of hopefulness. And so this is, this is what we read. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sit rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden, and pay attention to this, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, the, and skip down with me to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
And so if, if, you're, if you feel like you're still new to the scriptures or perhaps you're opening yourself up to the scriptures for the first time in a long time, or maybe it's just been a minute since you've been in Genesis, uh, this is the wisdom of the Hebrew people. This is a foundation story that they would turn back to and in turn that we get to turn back to to situate ourselves in the world. And there's this expression among rabbis that, that this book, Genesis, which is a part of a collection of work called the Torah or the teaching, which spans from Genesis to Deuteronomy, that this work, the Torah, it's like a gym. Like, like a fine stone, like a diamond. And as you spin it in your hand and light refracts off of it in new ways, you actually get to see the brilliance of that stone in fresh ways just by simply turning it. And with a diamond, if you can picture it, it comes to a point. And so this isn't a matter of, oh, we're seeing something new or rather putting something new into it. It's rather that we're seeing something we had yet to see before. And I think that, that this is the case here. See, in my, in my opinion, this is one such moment in this story that we've just read. We get to see something new that delight and despair actually work together, that they are not pulled apart, but there can be a tension between the two. And look again at verse 15. Notice, notice this, that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So right off the bat, this fledgling human is placed in a garden, a place called Eden. And often biblical places, they help to tell the story of the scriptures. And Eden itself, in the original language that the, that the Old Testament was written in of Hebrew, it has this idea of delight. So you could actually say that humanity was, was placed in delight. In other words, their address is delight. This is where they are to situate themselves in the world, in the delight of God, because this is what he intended. Humanity and creation and the divine God himself woven together in intimacy, intimately aligned. And as a part of this invitation to be with God and to push the bounds of delight out to the ends of the earth, the, Yahweh, like a good father, he sets up boundaries for the flourishing of the people. And this is what we read about. Then go with me down to verse 16. We see this boundary being set up. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. No, notice that the boundary starts with the freedom. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And I imagine if you've grown up in and around churchianity then, or the church itself, you may have heard this passage taught on before and Therefore, you may think you know the story, but let me just give a little recap. See, right in this moment, um, there's the boundary, and then subsequent to that, right after that, there is a trespassing that takes place. Humanity essentially rejects God's bounds for good and bad for flourishing, and they end up derailing the human project because humanity was set up to represent God uniquely in the world. They were set up to push the bounds of flourishing out, to be the people for whom all of creation would see the delight of God on their faces. And yet they, when they recategorized good and bad, when they trespassed, they compromised that goodness. 
In summary, humanity, they reframe this boundary on their own terms, and the implication of this fallout is what comes, and we see this start to play out in Genesis 3, and we're going to pick up with that fallout story in verse 22, so uh, either flip the page or just look at the next page to Genesis 3, 22. This is God speaking. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil are good and bad. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat. Just a quick word on that, that, those, that little turn of phrase, to, to see, to reach out and take. Well, we'll touch on this in a moment, but this is often how the scripture will then talk about the trespassing of God's bounds of flourishing, seeing something that looks good to you and reaching out and taking it on your own terms. And so God, for the goodness of humanity, sets up this boundary. Verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the garden of delight, of the garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he had be taken. Notice now that the ground is a place that's not yielding its abundance and goodness. Now there is work that has been tainted because before this work was there and yet work had this inherent goodness. There was delight caught up in the work, but now there's this adverse relationship going on there. Verse 24. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim. Now, these are not like the plump little um, Valentine's character. These are like intense, um, like apocalyptic flavor. Picture like fantasy, because then you're going to see there's this waving sword there that's set as well. And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now again, you may have heard this, and I just want to, to give a fresh opportunity for you to see this, this gem turning ever so slightly, because right here we get to see despair defined. It's this rejection from the place of delight. Notice these words, banished, pushed out. It's restricted. God has literally set up a flaming sword going back and forth to guard the way. And maybe this brings up for you this idea of uh, like an Old Testament God who is vindictive and angry and frustrated with this, these humans who have messed up his plan. Well, just, I just want to pause there for a moment because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so this quote-unquote God of the Old Testament, no, this is the graciousness of a father who is loving his creation, his children. He's setting up a bound for flourishing, and he wants to guard do you notice that language? And this guarding, it is for their good. See, Yahweh, he doesn't desire humanity to live in that constant place of despair. He actually has a hope for delight to be reimagined in this community, these people. And I think that this makes a little bit more sense as we begin to consider Eden itself a bit further. See, Eden it's, itself was this place, as we just mentioned a moment ago, of like unfettered intimacy with the Father, unfettered delight, like humanity and divine. There's these lines about God walking in the cool of the day, just cultivating trust. And then when God comes and he shows up, he actually sees that there's been this division that's taken place. And this is what has uh, become popularized as the vandalism of shalom. Shalom is that Hebrew word for peace. And it certainly means peace, like a restful state, but it also has an idea of more than just tranquility. It's a peace that then pervades into all the nooks and crannies of life. It's this idea of complete rest. 
And so this vandalism of shalom has taken place on the other side of Eden. And now, like on the other side of humanity's disregard and despair and distance from God, shalom has been vandalized. It has been marred. You see, you turn a page from Genesis 3 and you get to Genesis 4 and you get to see that humanity, Adam and Eve, who had metaphorically been at one another's throat, God shows up, if you know the story, to walk in the cool of the day to cultivate this intimacy and he shows up and, and he's looking for them and yet they're isolated, they're hiding. And then when the encounter happens, it's like, well, the woman that you gave me. So blame shifting, and then the attention turns to the woman. Well, well, the serpent was there, and it's this distancing and blame shifting and isolation and division, and so humanity's metaphorically at one another's throat. In Genesis 3, you turn the page, and they are literally at one another's throat. Cain spills the blood of his brother Abel, and the blood is crying out to God from the soil, and this is the point where we realize death has indeed come. We thought, eat of this tree and death will come, but then they keep living. So what does this mean? Well, it means that death is both the bodily loss of life and that death is more pervasive than that. Death has indeed come. And this is the word that's used by the, the authors of the scriptures to capture this swirly, chaotic mess. Because as I just said, it's, death is more than just no pulse or no breath. Death is this place where God's intent for the goodness of the world has been vandalized. And what Genesis 2 reminds us is, is that we were actually made for Eden. I think what happens, this is the moment where you're going through your inbox and let's just say hypothetically there's, there's 10 emails in there or, or maybe you're like old school and you're listening to your voicemail. And you are, you're going through and you see, oh, it's like good to neutral voicemail slash email inbox stuff. And then there's the one, the one email that's a little off kilter. It's, you know, it's from your sister and you and her, you love each other really well, but you also annoy each other perfectly. And she sends you this email and you can just hear her tone. There's that passive, aggressive, Midwest, nice flavor underneath that. And it just irks you to your core and the rest of the goodness to neutrality of those other emails is out the window completely and you are like fuming over this one thing. And my, my point in saying this is that we like a moth to a flame are like just drawn to this thing because we see it so often. You see, you may hear we were made for Eden, we were made for delight and you may be saying, but Kyle, I don't see that. I'm not living in the midst of that. And yet, I, I want to remind us that this is actually the first word spoken over humanity. So they're very good. God sees the creation. He says, very good. You see this in statements like, they were naked and there was no shame. And maybe that makes the middle schooler in you want to giggle a little bit, but that's just me, I guess. Um, Naked and no shame. This gal, Amy Jill Levine, Dr. Amy Jill Levine, she's a, a Jewish New Testament scholar, and she's helped to kind of help me situate myself in the scriptures from a Jewish perspective, because I'm not Jewish. And so Dr. Levine, she'll look at these and she'll give some commentary. When she thinks about Genesis 2, this statement of naked and without shame, the idea is that you could look at yourself in a full-length mirror, naked with no disappointment. 
And that, that lack of disappointment with who you are actually extends not just from your body to the ground itself and the creation around you, that that is the goodness that God spoke over creation. And that is the thing that has been marred. And yet the reality, the reality is that that's not the place that we live in. We live in a place of strain. We live in a place where there's forced interactions and manipulation. There's striving. There is seeing and taking on our own terms. You see, this is, this is the world that we inhabit. We inhabit a world of disappointment. And the curious thing is that none of us chose to be born. And yet here we are. And if you're thinking, I don't really know about this whole disappointment thing, let me just reference one more time the past 16 months. So here we find ourselves situated in the midst of this. We are laced in land with disappointment. We are haunted by shalom. I think that we actually know deep in our bones that this is not all that there is. We are haunted by shalom. And what I mean when I say that is that we want the peace of God. It's just that we also think that we can possess peace and dispossess God. We think that peace is something that can, we can see it and take it on our own terms. The challenge is, is that any peace is, is actually God's peace. It's, it's an arrow blinking, it's like a megaphone pointing to who God is, to this reconciliation of all things. And so we think that we can take hold of peace and, and dispossess God, and yet... I don't think that that's actually true, despite the fact that when we look around and, and we look at our neighbors or our friends or our coworkers and um, what I would call the secular myth of progress, I have never seen more insistence for the equity of people, for the care for the environment, for the advancements of those who are on the fringe and the margins, for people to be whole. There has never been in my, and you know, I haven't lived very long, but in my short lifespan, there's ne I've never seen or read about a greater movement for the goodness of people, and yet we think we can define that goodness apart from God. And what I think that does is it actually situates us even deeper into the loss, because those things that we think will give us what we want, they just do not do, and we find ourselves in what Genesis calls death. We find ourselves caught up in that chaotic, swirly mess. And now death, again, it can literally mean the bodily loss of life. It can mean the loss of a spouse, the loss of a friend. But death can be so much more than just that. Death itself can be the, the loss of a relationship or the loss of a dream. Death can itself be the loss of a hope, a hope dashed by something like 16 plus months of what in the world are we doing? And so the question that is sitting amongst us is, is not like, have you lost something? The question, at least I think, and would submit to us today is, have you grieved the loss of what you hoped for? Have you grieved the loss of what you had hoped would happen with your business, with your partner, with your best friend? And one of the most helpful realizations in my own journey through grief, to be clear, this is a, a talk on grief, in case you hadn't caught on yet. 
One of the most helpful realizations is, is just naming this pervasive lie about grief. And, and the lie goes something like this. You can only grieve the big losses. Only severe loss warrants grief. And if you do otherwise, if you grieve, not according to that rule, if you grieve the loss of a job or even just having to stay home when you don't want to or, or wanting to gather with your community and yet being told we're not gathering, like if you grieve those things, it's actually an injustice to quote unquote true loss. See, that lie at its core says that grief other than true grief trivializes the rest of it. And I just want to say, that is a lie. Because all loss is worth grieving. Even some of the good things are worth grieving. If you've ever experienced a child leaving your home because they're growing up, that is a good thing. And it is worth grieving over. And simply by grief, it is getting what's on the inside out. And yet what we often do is we end up charting our losses. We end up putting them on some sort of scale from major to minor. And in that place, we like prohibit ourselves from ever entering into the minor things. And then with the major things, this was pointed out to me recently, is that we like construct armor so that we're protected from them. And we come up to those losses and we just go, okay, here's, here's my hurt. And then we take our armor off and we continue to live our lives. And yet this is simply living in the midst of the lie. See, whether your loss is marked by adultery and divorce or your loss is marked by the loss of a relationship or a job or moving to a new school, like every loss warrants grief. It's all worth grieving. And this includes those quote unquote normal transitions. Let's just say you're moving and maybe you're moving just across the street or you're moving apartments. And yet in that first apartment, you like bought a plant and it died on that shelf. But then there was one little shoot and you brought it back to life. Like, and now you're all those memories that are attached to that. They are worth grieving. They're worth releasing into the loving care of God. And again, that grief, it's just getting what's on the inside out. And again, the question is this, like, it's not have you lost something, it's have you grieved the loss of what you had hoped for? And I think our, our willingness to engage with that question will actually help us walk in intimacy with Jesus. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment when we turn to Jesus. But before that, you may be sitting here and you might think, this is actually irrelevant to my life with God. Uh, and, and maybe that's your response because there's a deep hurt. And so let me just, let me, um, we don't know each other that well. Um, we can gladly, I'll have, let's have a conversation. But for now, from a, like a pastoral posture, I'm going to challenge y your resistance for a moment. Is that okay if I do that? Is that okay? Online, you don't really have a choice. So here we go. Here's a little, a little pushback. If you're thinking this is irrelevant to my life with God, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 5. This is a 
This is the flood account, what's preceding it. This is a picture of the living God. The Lord saw, verse 5, how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Hear that again, his heart was deeply troubled. Let me just pause right there. We, we, we know that God is spirit. And yet in this moment, the author is searching for how to articulate the pain that the living God feels over the despair of humanity. And he's seeking, they're seeking where their own life experience that in the core, the center of their whole life experience, they're placing that reality here. And they say that his heart was troubled. Verse seven, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals the birds the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them so if you're sitting here and you're thinking that grief is irrelevant to your life with God there is God's very self grieving over the state of human rebellion and this despair that we find ourselves situated in. This is not God's will. The way things are, this is not the ideal. God himself grieves it. And, and, and these words were so helpful for me to process that as a reality. This is New Testament scholar Tim Gombas. This is what he says. God created the world as his temple his dwelling place. And he created humans as his image bearers within creation. His rule over the world was to be manifested by humans, overseeing the spread of shalom and blessing. And God created humanity to rule over creation, subduing it, bringing about its flourishing and enjoying its rich abundance. Everyone would clearly see God as sovereign king over creation and the reality that he truly was inhabiting his temple, which was all of creation, when God's image bearers were doing what he had told them to do. But humans chose not to do that. Humanity rebelled, and these strange realities of sin and death entered creation, and we have seen chaos and destruction ever since. The world now looks to us like a place over which God is not reigning. And when he says us, he's referring to the church and humanity writ large. He goes on to say, while God remains sovereign king, and let me just say this, nothing will challenge God as sovereign king. No pandemic, no racial inequality, no global climate change, whatever you think about that theory, nothing will challenge the sovereign kingship of God, and yet, Here's what we see. God remains sovereign king and God's sovereign kingship is not being manifested in the creation that is his temple because his image bearers are not manifesting it. This is what grieves God's heart. And this means that creation is in a condition that is out of control. And maybe, maybe you have felt that. And I I don't know what your out of control feels like for me, um, but here's the, like, the, the minutia in my life. 
My uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law are in town with us this weekend, and it has been a joy to see them play with our boys. We have two littles, and uh, my goodness, I've noticed that I so desire control. The notice, the, the place I notice it the most, any guesses? The, the kitchen. The kitchen. There's something about like a desire for things to be in a particular place and things to be done in a particular way that I would feel this like anxiety, this perceived threat to my values. I would get a little hot under the collar, a little sweaty, if you know what I'm saying. Maybe it's just me who has control problems. Okay, um, All that to say, like in that smallest of place, I'm like being haunted by, I want peace in that place, and yet I want to accomplish that peace on my own terms. And yet the invitation is to recognize that we are all in the midst of this chaotic, swirly mess. And that humanity is not fulfilling its charge to subdue creation and bring about flourishing. And in the face of that loss, God is grieved and I just want to humbly submit that, again, like if the creator God can grieve, I think we can as well. And what's really fortunate for us is that we have the scriptures. It's, it's thought that up to two-thirds of the Psalms, you can go ahead and, and turn to Psalm 13 with me, that up to two-thirds of the Psalms carry within them these laments. And a lament is, is simply this. Gary Brashears, he would describe it as a cry that is rooted in trust. Uh, lament, it allows us to get what's on the inside out, and the scriptures are littered with them. If you, if you think about the, the prophet Habakkuk, the whole thing is like a lament over the way things are, but what we see here in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 13, is this beautiful illustration that a cry can be grounded in trust, that a crying out and even in frustration does not mean distance from God. It could mean hope and nearness and intimacy, and so if you will, Psalm 13, this is what we read. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall, but... I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. It's almost like at that transition there that the psalmist is reminding themselves, preaching to themselves, yes, this is the reality. And they're not diminishing it. They're saying, this is where I am but this is who God is. And so I can be where I am because God is who he is because my crying out does not diminish God's sovereign reality, that he is the sovereign king. This is what a cry grounded in trust looks like. And I, I, I just want to turn your attention to one more psalm. Psalm 77, go ahead and flip your way over there with me. Because I think sometimes we, we say, okay, I, I, yeah, I, I want, this sounds nice, Maybe this doesn't sound nice, but I, I can see what you're saying. I, I, I could see how I would do well to get what's on the inside out. Because have, have you ever played with a beach ball in a pool? 
Maybe you can imagine this picture then with me if you haven't. You get the beach ball and you hold it under the water. Can you tell where that beach ball is going to pop up? Sometimes it's like right in your face. (laughs) Or then it's like over off to the left. You see, grief, when we hold it down and we force it under, we don't know where it will erupt. And sometimes it will hit us in the face when we least expect it, or sometimes it'll hit another person. So we need to get that out. We need to release that. And I think that Psalm 77 gives us a place to begin to see how to do that. Starting in verse one, just reading to verse nine. I cried out. Again, a cry rooted in trust. I cried out to God for help. I cried to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, and then pay attention to these questions. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? If you are searching for like a grappling hook to send down into the depth of your despair and pull that out, these questions very well could be that. A cry grounded in trust sounds as honest as this. See, the point of lament, it's not just to emotionally vomit on God. And I think God is fine if we do that, just to be very clear. But so often, at least what I've noticed in my own life is that I'll get it out. I'll just say, okay, I just need to get this out. So maybe I'll open up a journal and this will be like a cathartic, a helpful, a therapeutic practice to just get this stuff out. But then I won't actually sit with it. See, these questions, they actually beckon us to listen to a response. This cry that is grounded in trust, it allows us to say with God who is sovereign to stay with him in the midst of the hurt so that when we release those things, we might receive healing in turn. So I think that's one of these little myths is that grieving is just about letting it all go. But with Jesus, with the living God, we actually get to receive in the place of that because remember pain, the place of pain, it is the place of healing. So if we all experience loss, and I think that we do, and, and a right response is grief, how? So to close, I just want to give us two things. I'm going to give us a picture of Jesus and then some really, really practical things. So if you would turn over to the Gospels, the Gospel according to John, and we're, we're going to pick up in chapter 11. And, and in this, uh, there's a lot that's preceding this in, uh, in Jesus' interaction here. But just to kind of catch us up, Jesus has cultivated this deep and abiding relationship with two sisters and a brother. And these two sisters, uh, Martha and Mary, Mary does this controversial thing. She sits down at the feet of Jesus, the rabbi. And if you don't know this, to do so as a woman and then to be received by Jesus would turn upside down the structures of the day. 
Mary chose the better thing to sit at the feet of her rabbi, Jesus. And in the midst of one of the most challenging losses their family experiences, we pick up with the story, John 11, starting in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And Jesus asks, where have you laid him? Come and see, they replied. In verse 35, Jesus wept and the Jews said, see how he loved him. This idea of Jesus weeping is carries the weight of Jesus bawling uncontrollably. And why? Because he loved Lazarus. And because all loss is worth grieving. Jesus did not push that loss down for another time. He allowed it to come forth because what Jesus does, you know one of the most annoying things about Jesus as we walk with him is that he doesn't turn away from our anguish he actually invites us to turn toward our anguish because he has healing in his wings. He has healing available for us in that place of pain. And you notice this, there is no rebuke to Mary. How dare you talk to me like that? I am the sovereign king in the flesh. No, Jesus receives her. No, no chiding, no cliched response about her pain, Jesus joins her in her anguish. You see, emotional health, it's not the absence of pain. So we have, we've been in this little working definition of emotional health is our capacity to notice, name, and attend to in love the things going on in and around us. Emotional health is not the absence of pain, it's the ability to look our pain in the face and with Jesus treat it as a reality that just is and then to receive his comfort and his healing, to ask him questions like, will I lay in anguish forever? And I, I found myself wondering after just thinking through this a bit more like, if we never disclose our loss to Jesus, will he join us in it? I don't say that to manipulate. I don't say that to, to help you turn. I, I, I say it with sincerity from a place of like, if, if I'm unwilling to disclose this, if I'm unwilling to recognize this as a loss, will Jesus join me there? And I, I don't have an answer to that. Perhaps you have seen like what it looks like with great emotional health to turn towards grief. You have seen crying and lamenting and anger. And grief is not a linear thing that you follow a pattern. It's often like a bird's nest where it's a bunch of stuff strung together and you try to pull it out in from in and it's just messier the more you go through it. But if you've been in a place, a family of origin where you've seen grieving well, let us learn from you. You were like a unicorn. Because what we do, what I've been trained to do is never pay attention to the loss because the loss will slow you down. The loss will define you. 
You have to buck up. You have to carry on. You have to stiffen your upper lip. And maybe, maybe my experience is unique, but I, in our community I'm learning it's, it's not as unique as I thought. That there's actually not a place for us to grieve well. And Lord willing, this could be that type of community. And so practically, um, here's how we could do this. And I just submit these as ways, not ultimatums or anything, but we need, if we're gonna grieve, to see our loss and to see it without minimizing it or explaining it away. See, so often when a loss will occur, I was talking to my, my uh, close friend Jackson, who's a therapist, and I was like, um, give me the crash course in grieving. <laughs> and he was saying, well, it's interesting when somebody loses a, a partner or a longtime friend, whomever, they'll often talk about the person and they're like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm sad that they're no longer here. He's like, yes, that's, I, that makes sense. Their, their, their closeness, maybe a spot on a couch or a chair or a pillow, yes, all of that. And then he'll just say, well, what were the beautiful things? What, what were the meaningful things? What, what were those moments that you loved? Let's talk about those. You see, to, to see our loss, even of this past 16 months, perhaps it would, we would do well to just say, what before the pandemic went really well? Maybe you loved coming and seeing people and talking in the lobby or you enjoyed doing X, Y, and Z and then over the course of the pandemic you realize that those things just slowly diminished or they quickly fell off. That is the place of loss. So we need to see our loss without minimizing it or explaining it away. And then from that place, we can, we can then begin to cast our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us. Anxiety is this, this thing I'm learning about. And it is this uh, thing that we often feel in our body, a perceived threat to our values. And then it, it kind of closes us in. We get cloistered within ourselves. And it's a move of self-protection. We withdraw and yet the invitation with Jesus is because he cares for us, because he can be a place of trust, we release that, we cast, we throw it on him because he can handle it. And beyond that, the invitation, and this is the scariest and maybe the riskiest one, is to do this together. Community is really just, it's like you and another person or a group of people headed in the same direction. And so if, you, if you're like looking for community, we would love to help that, this be a place where you can get what's on the inside out. That often comes with trust and time. We totally get this. Suffice it to say, grieving needs to be done together. Maybe it, this, it doesn't start out that way. Maybe it just starts out with you and a journal. At some point, it, it does need to move beyond you and your own thoughts and you and your own thoughts before the living God. Because somebody else will show you something that you've not seen. And my final little thing here is just to say, slow down. <laughs> like we've been running for our, from our grief for so long, maybe it's just time to stop and let it catch up so that we can receive God's healing. You see, the reality is, is that um, God is not content with the way things are. And we actually see that his discontentedness with the way that things were with despair set in motion the reality where God put on flesh, where Jesus of Nazareth lived this life that was of one of complete obedience. He not only joined the anguish of Mary and Martha, you know what he said to Lazarus? Arise. 
And Lazarus pointed forward to the, the hope that was the seedbed of our hope, that is that death does not have the final word in God's good world, that there is resurrection hope in the name of Jesus. And beyond that point with Lazarus, it's this turning point because then Jesus, he sets himself toward the cross, this place where he would allow all of our loss and anguish to come into himself and consume him so that we could stand with the hope of resurrection. And so I just want to invite you to stand with me. We are actually going to turn toward this living Jesus. We're going to remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. We're going to do this in the bread and the cup. And I, I just want to invite you here at, at, to, to take the bread, which is the body of the living God that was broken and to receive it as not just spiritual food, but as an active reminder that, it, that healing comes through brokenness. And more so, when you've taken the bread, this little wafer, I want to invite you to take the cup. This is, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as you take that, as you take in the bread and the cup, would you then maybe receive these moments as moments of healing? And over these next few songs, I just invite you to see those things, to ask the spirit of the living God. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to continue to worship through song. If there's a, if there's a point where you... You, you are just, you feel a sense of whelm that is, is such that you would desire prayer. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be in the back, kind of in the entrance where you can find me. Uh, there is no compulsion there. Um, I just wanna sit there, listen to the Spirit, maybe intercede with you if that's something that you need. And so let me pray and let us continue to worship through song to, to get what is on the inside out. So Spirit of the living God, we thank you. We honor you. Jesus, we thank you. We honor you. Father, we thank you. We honor you that you chose delight over despair, that you sent your son so that we, so that we could become sons and daughters, that you, Jesus, did not despise the shame of the cross, but you went willingly. And we receive, we receive Jesus. In the place of pain, would you bring healing? And would you help us, Jesus, to be patient with that process? Could that start now? We just pray your healing over this church, pray your healing over this community, pray your love to be felt, for us to be reminded of that in this time. Amen.